And so we're going to kind of walk through the stories of Jesus, and we're going to be reading two stories specifically this morning, one in John and one in Luke, that talk about one incredibly important miracle that he does, and then a story of him casting a demon out of a man. And I think these stories are going to do what a lot of the stories do when we engage with them, that part of you is going to nod and go, yeah, yeah, I know this story, and you're going to say that you own the story, and you have an opinion on it, and you're, you're content to accept it and go on with your life. But in our Being Jesus series, that's not enough to do with these stories and these texts that we encounter. Because I think there's some of you that are like me, and there's some of you that there's a part of you that's like me, that you approach these stories, and although you nod your head and accept them, there's part of you that's a little cynical, and a little pessimistic, and a little bit of a realist. And you go, yeah, 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 that's a great story, I believe it, but I'm not sure of how it actually fits into the now. And that's how we approach miracles, that's how we approach the demonic, is that we're sitting there kind of doubtful of the power, doubtful of the authority, but more importantly, we're unsure of the scope and the meaning of these stories and how it applies to us now. A lot of us will swallow and will admit that we will engage with the stories and the texts of Jesus in the scriptures, but we're not exactly sure how it plays into the right now. And in a way, I I get encouraged because I know that although I struggle with that, and, and I don't want you to get me wrong, I have an undergrad in theology. I'm working on my master's in theology. I don't doubt the scriptures. I don't doubt God's work. But I'm just being honest about that realism of how we, in, we encounter these stories and how we see them play out. But I'm always encouraged because I'm reminded that Israel did the exact same thing. And what you're going to see in these stories is that the Jewish people, when they encountered the power and the authority and the word and work of Jesus, they were unsure of it as well. And that totally rocked their world. And so in a way, we don't want to deal with the authority of a voice or a word. We feel like what God says applies back then, but it shouldn't apply to us or that it's different with us, which is kind of funny because that's how we justify most sin. We recognize that he has authority. We recognize that he has power. We can even be awestruck and in wonder and amazement from that power, but do we feel any serious engagement with it? And so I think these texts that we're going to talk about this morning are going to bring up a lot of questions, three questions specifically. The first one is, if God exists, how engaged in creation is he? Because we'll admit that he exists. We'll admit that he created. We'll admit that he's active and living. But how involved in creation, how involved in our lives, how involved in the circumstances is he? To take it down another level, what is the purpose of miracles And casting out of demons. And how does it work? That's a big honest question. And it's okay for you to have that question. In your mind. In your heart. And then the third one. That's I think a little bit more theological. And a little bit more spiritually forming. Is what is the relationship of faith to miracles? What's the relationship of power and authority. To the revelation that God is trying to bring? See these stories. Tell you a lot about Jesus. And they tell you how people respond to Jesus. And I want to remind you guys what what the series is about, to think about not just what are these stories about, but what does it tell you about how to be Jesus? Our series is called Being Jesus. We have to figure out what that looks like, and especially with word and authority, where does word and authority come into our lives? How does God interrupt people with his power and his authority, his word and his work, using us? And that's why the fill in the blank that's on your sheet this morning is the word of God is powerful and effective. The word of God is powerful 
and effective. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of John, chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 43 to 54 first. We're going to read the first story. It's just in John. In the Bibles that are in the seats, it's page 889, also known as 889. And if you don't have one of the Bibles from our seats, you're somewhere between page 700 and 1,000. I don't know. If you're on an iPad, there's no pages. You just, good luck. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. I'm going to give you guys the context as you're turning there. John has started out giving a prologue in his book. Jesus and John the Baptist start gathering disciples. John goes, or sorry, Jesus goes down to Judea and he says that he goes down to the temple and that's when he clears out the temple in John chapter 2, right? Pretty awesome, intense scene of Jesus kicking over tables and shouting at people and trying to get the point about what his place of worship and prayer is about. Then Jesus gets a chance to have a little midnight meeting with one of the, one of the key leaders, Nicodemus, and talks with him about life and about what Jesus is doing in the world. Then Jesus starts moving up to Samaria on his way back to Galilee. Most Jewish boys and girls don't go through Samaria. Jesus does with his disciples, and he has that very well-known story of having the meeting with that woman at the well. And that was not some kind of rendezvous. That was Jesus meeting with a woman by circumstance, although we know that God doesn't work in just circumstance. There's always a purpose. And he gets there, and he ends up having this conversation about being living water. And in the the process of telling this woman about what she really needs in her life and what worship is really about, she ends up going back into the town and telling everybody that this man has told me everything I've ever done, which is a little bit of an exaggeration. And all the people come out and engage with Jesus. And in John chapter 4, verse 42, Jesus, all the people have just proclaimed that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world. Okay, that's a pretty cool high that Jesus is coming off of. He's enjoyed unqualified, unopposed, and open-hearted success. And it was all based on people believing in the strength of his word. He didn't do any miracles. It was simply on the strength of his word. And so now we walk into the text. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen as well. It goes like this. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. That's the two days in Samaria. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering, literally continues to live. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, this is a great story because it's Jesus doing a miracle in a way that we're not very used to because he doesn't go there. He does this one kind of live via satellite, 
Although Jesus didn't need satellites, right? They weren't invented yet. Jesus is able to do this miracle from a distance, and that gives it more miraculous power. That gives it more amazing impact. But it's not the only time he's done it. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, and in Luke chapter 7, two, two passages of the same story, there's the story of the centurion in Capernaum that comes up to Jesus and says, my servant is dying. And Jesus goes, okay, let's go, and we'll go heal him. And the, and, the, and the centurion actually goes, no, I'm a man of authority. I understand what it means to give commands. You have authority, and so your word alone is enough to heal him. And so Jesus ends up healing the centurion's servant from a distance, but that's by the centurion's choice, not by Jesus. Then there's another story in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Jesus goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and as he's there, he ends up encountering this Canaanite woman. So a non-Jewish woman that's kind of following them along, begging Jesus to heal her daughter and release her from a demon. And Jesus makes kind of a statement where he goes, you know, I'm here for the Jewish people. And she keeps pestering him. And finally, he makes another statement similar to what I just said. And the woman goes, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And seeing her faith, it says that he healed her daughter who wasn't with her at that moment. So here you have a few stories where Jesus is already doing this type of healing at a distance. But this one has a very specific point in terms of how people deal with the miracle, how they deal with the wonder, how they deal with their authority um, and power issues as it comes to Jesus. So it starts in verse 44, where Jesus says that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And that's come up in other places in the gospel, Matthew 13 and Luke 4, where all the writers, all the disciples kept remembering that Jesus talked about this, that anytime he would go back to his home region, especially after what just happened in Samaria, he would see that people would not receive and respond to him in the same way as when he went other places. And I know that personally as a speaker who I've had a chance to speak in a couple different countries, I've had a chance to speak in a lot of different youth groups, that there's something different about when you go and preach in another place versus when you're preaching week by week in the place that people know you and see you all the time. Maybe it's because people don't know you and see you all the time. But Jesus is picking up on this as a point as he's walking into his hometown, in his home region, really. Um, Cana is not far from Nazareth. You're talking about six to eight miles from where Jesus lives. So this is familiar territory. Jesus may have had friends that he played with from this city. But it says that as he came into Cana, people welcomed him, right? They had been down at the feast. They saw him kicking over the tables. They're saying, dude, you're radical. You're awesome. we're, We're glad that you're back, right? And they're all excited for him to come. And receiving Jesus is a good thing because it implies at least a hospitality. And it applies an atmosphere in which faith can grow and flourish because that's what happened when Jesus was with the Samaritans. He was there. They invited him. They received him in and he stayed two more days to talk to them so that they could grow and have the opportunity to become disciples and followers of Jesus. But John in this gospel, has already let us know what Jesus thinks of popularity and what he has done and how that relates to faith because people were constantly responding to his activity and his work, but that didn't mean that they believed in who he was. So turn the page back to John chapter 2 really quick. I'm just going to read John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Right after Jesus was in Judea and he cleared out the temple, it tells us that now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So that's Jesus already taking the responses of people and going, I know what this is really about, and I'm not going to entrust myself to that. And if you were to go a couple chapters after the passage we're reading, you don't have to turn there. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, Jesus has another chance to go to a feast, and he decides not to. And his brothers tell him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then look what John adds. For not even his brothers believed in him. These are guys that they saw his miracles. They saw his works. They believed in the miracles. They believed he he should keep doing them. But in essence, they did not believe that Jesus was someone of power and authority that people should entrust their lives to. So Jesus knew that. He understood it. And as he takes that, he comes into Cana, which the passage reminds us that this is where Jesus had turned water into wine, which is always one of our favorite passages because it's how we can justify drinking. (laughs) And he comes back into Cana, and it says that this official comes from Capernaum to see Jesus. Now, Capernaum is a city right along the Sea of Galilee. It's about 26 kilometers away. And I'm going to use kilometers because I lived in New Zealand and Canada for like seven years. And it's just easier. It makes more sense. And 26 kilometers, which is a day's travel from Capernaum to Cana. So he goes to visit Jesus, does a day trip. But he's going because his son is dying. And any of you that is a parent here and has ever had one of your kids injured or near death, you don't just... Take your time to get to the hospital. You don't just take your time for something to happen. You rush like a madman to that location. So I guarantee you that although this was probably a 12-hour journey from Capernaum to Cana, he probably did it in eight hours flat because it was that urgent for him. He was probably knocking over old women and other children to get there. He's probably stealing people's donkeys, and then he goes, this is slower. And then he just gets back on his feet and starts running. And he gets to Cana, and he makes this request to Jesus. Now, it tells us that he's a royal official. Now, it's talking about a Jewish royal official. And the only person that could have been a a Jewish royal official is um, somebody that worked in Herod Antipas's little royalty sphere that was around Galilee. Herod Antipas was one of the three sons of Herod the Great, and he controlled the region of Galilee. Right? So he was some type of royal official, whether it was military or civilian, whether he was a court judge or he was a tax person on a higher scale, but he's an official of some import. He comes, he asks Jesus to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus responds in verse 48 Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now that's kind of a harsh slap in the face. That's a rebuke, in essence. And he gives this rebuke of sorts and and you're kind of like this is kind of a put off jesus you've come back in we're welcoming you we're excited and, and you're kind of doing this and really what jesus is saying when he's giving this statement is he's actually not directing it just at this official that has just ran as fast as he could to come see jesus because his son is dying the greek actually has the the plural you which is the y'all right so that's that twang they even had it in the greek right Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
And he's challenging the people in general, but then I think Jesus is doing something very specific with this man because I believe that he is treating this man as a potential disciple, and so he's challenging him to faith. So in asking this, he's actually taking the other half of the road for this man and making him believe without seeing it immediately. He's going to question and challenge the human motivation and his human nature on what he expects from Jesus and what he expects from life. And when John... When John kind of unpacks the words Jesus uses, the reason why Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, is because if he said, unless you see miracles, it has a different meaning. Because a sign, which is one of John's favorite words in this gospel, is a revelation or an unveiling of God that can be worked through word or activity, through teaching or through miracle. And so when John takes sign and he links it with wonder, he's noting the fact that people wanted Jesus to prove himself, prove himself simply through an act of power. That's it. They didn't want to know more about him. They didn't want to entrust themselves in faith to him. They didn't want to follow him. They just wanted him to act in more power. And so that kind of provokes Jesus to say something like this because he's seen this sign-seeking false faith that abounds in Galilee. I think Jesus is actually asking this man more likely with his eyes more than those words. Do you have the faith to take this on and believe? Do you want to see what God is doing among you? Or do you just want to see miracles? That's a great question that I think comes into our lap as well. Do you want to see what God is actually doing among you and all of his full revelation and all of his purpose? Or do you just want to see more mighty act? Jesus is inviting him into more. And so in verse 49, the man responds to this. And he does more than just asks this time. He almost persistently urges or begs. The Greek actually has this idea of continually asking, continually speaking. And he says, sir, come down before my little son dies. Sir, come down before my little son dies. And I don't think this is that junior high or like little child, like mom, 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 mom. I don't think it's that. I think it's this guy looking in Jesus' eyes and going, sir, come down before my little son dies. No, I understand, but please come down before my little son dies. And he actually changes the word from what it's talked about earlier in 47. And he changes it to this word, padon. He goes from saying son to my little precious one. And then the, the kind of English Scottish commentators, they use the word laddie, which I like that because he goes, come before my little laddie dies. And so he's saying this with affection. He's saying this in depth. But even in that statement, even in him trying to command Jesus to come and do this, he's making two fundamental mistakes that I believe we make all the time as well. And I don't hold it against him. I don't sit there and judge this man because I think I would do the exact same thing. I think we do the exact same thing all the time. First mistake he makes is he says that Jesus had to go to Capernaum to save his son. Now that just makes sense. Every miracle that he would tend to know about, the healer had to be there, touch the person, pray over the person, put oil on the person, do something with the person. They don't know a lot of stories of the miracles happening from a distance. So he's making that mistake of, Jesus, you have to come. And he's forgetting that there's more power and authority before him than he realizes. The second mistake is he says that if the son dies, it's too late. 
Now, obviously, Lazarus hasn't been raised from the dead yet, but that's the same exact issue that Mary and Martha come up to Jesus with after he dies. If you would have been here, he would not have died. And they're not realizing, just like this official doesn't realize, that Jesus' power and authority, his work and his word, is much greater than they're assuming. And so these weren't issues of not understanding. Sorry, these were issues of not understanding and believing in Jesus as Lord and what he could really do. He's challenging this man to drop these standards and look deeper at him in authentic and real faith. Jesus did not want to just give the sick son back to the father. He wants to give himself as one to believe in through faith as well. Jesus is saying, I am the greater sign and I am the greater miracle from above. See me before you see what can be done with your son. In a sense, Jesus places himself between the father and his child. And so you end up seeing these statements right next to each other where you have the man say, come down for my little laddie dies. And then you see Jesus' response in verse 50, go, your son will live. The man commands Jesus to come. Jesus commands the guy to go. He says, my little laddie dies. Jesus counteracts it and goes, no, your son lives. Jesus is matching word for word what this man is asking because his compassion is still there. He still is giving this free gift of healing even in this context of a sign-seeking false faith that the whole region seemed to have. But for this man, for this official, this casual statement creates a dilemma of faith. Would the official still demand Jesus go or would he believe him at his word alone and that that would work? What would you do? Would you return to the possible death of your son and no chance of recovery? Or would you take Jesus at his word? Or would you keep demanding? I like what John Piper says in terms of how this man responds. He says, the official did not insist on seeing the miracle. He did not complain that Jesus would not come with him. Amazingly, he simply left, John says, believing Piper says, I'm inclined to think that in that moment of seeing Jesus speak so sovereignly in spite of all this man's requests, in spite of his accusations, something awakened in the man and he saw something more than a miracle worker. And I think, I think what happens with the official happens in our lives, that there are important faith testing points in our life, that you have a chance to move, move from a faith of seeing signs to a faith of believing his word. And that doesn't mean that you move away from the wonder of signs, but you start focusing on what the signs tell you about Jesus. Do you see what I'm talking about? They're connected. You're supposed to see in the signs more of who Jesus is, what his power and authority, his word and his work is about. That's the purpose of the sign. It tells us that the son was healed at that very instant. And what happened is that it was about middle of the day when, this, when the official had this conversation with Jesus. People don't travel at night through Israel back in that day. Even nowadays, it's not really smart. So the man goes and stays overnight in Cana. Gets up the next morning to start going back to his hometown. Now, when the son was healed instantaneously, the servants were all there. 
they saw it happen. He had a fever. Suddenly the fever broke. He was alive again in their view. And he ends up, the servants end up getting so excited that they realize we need to go tell our master. And I guarantee you there was one that was like a little bit too rambunctious and he like took off running and they're like, it's 26 miles. Oh gosh, kilometers. So, right. And I know I caught myself. So, so anyways, um, they would have noticed that, but they also wouldn't have traveled at night. So they would have had to have wait, waited totally anxious to tell their master this. So in the morning, one of the servants would have got up, took off at sunrise. The official would have got up, taken off at sunrise, and they would have met halfway in the middle. And it's there that the servant would have told the father, your son is made alive again. He continues to live. And can you imagine the little dance of joy that the official would have done in hearing that news? And of course, he's curious. And verse 52 says, when did he begin to get better? The official wants to know, the father wants to know. And the the servant says, yesterday at the seventh hour, unless you go by a Jewish time clock, you don't know what that means. If you're like seventh hour, is that 7 a.m., 7 p.m., different time? They always measured stuff from sunrise. So seventh hour is roughly around 1 p.m., 1 p.m.-ish, depending on when sunrise is. And, uh, And it was exactly that time that it happened. The father thought that this recovery, that this healing was going to be gradual, But it ended up being that it happened instantly. And you kind of get this chance, along with the father in the story, to realize that the son was healed at that instant at the same moment that the father realized it. And that's kind of cool because that kind of technique in writing and the way the spirit uses that is it's trying to put you in the story of how you respond to the miracle, how you respond to the dilemma of faith that Jesus gave this man. And verse 53 says that the father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said, your son will live. Three times the word, the son lives is repeated. Jesus says it, the servant says it, the father says it. God does not accidentally put in three words just to have the same noun repeat. John's entire gospel is littered with the words about life and living. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he's talking about life. When he talks to the woman at the well, he talks about life. He talks about being the bread of life. He talks about being living water. I am the resurrection and the life. This is key words that he keeps focusing on. My beard tends to make this pop, crackle, snop, Rice Krispies. I said snop, snap, sorry. So the man realizes that that was the hour Jesus had said, your son will live. He realizes this aspect of life and it says that he himself believed in all of his household. And I think he learned a huge lesson that we have to learn as well. The issue is not, will Jesus do a miracle? The question is, will you take Jesus at his word without seeing the miracle? That's the challenge to faith there. Now we're gonna switch it up here. Sorry. Um, We're going to switch it up here and we're actually going to talk about another miraculous work in Capernaum, right? So we're going to talk about this place, Capernaum. And before we do that, um, I want to tell you a little bit about Capernaum. Um, I got a chance just in the beginning of this year to go to Israel for the first time. And so I was actually in Capernaum and was able to take pictures and do video footage so that I could show it when we were here talking about it. Now, before I even get to that stuff, um, I want to put an opportunity out before you, church, that um, next February, March, I want to lead another trip back to Israel. Once it's in your system, you want to get back. I think people need to see it, especially in the series where we're talking about being Jesus, to walk where he walked, 
to get a chance to see and understand the culture and the landscape and how that plays in, it changes the way you read scripture. And so if you're interested in that, I want you to talk to me, find me on the city, email me. We need 60 people to go and we can take more than that. But if you're interested in a trip like that, don't say that that's just a bucket list trip that you're waiting for your future. Figure out a way to get there now. So that's my little plug for Israel. Um, but let's talk about Capernaum. So they're going to put up some video footage, and I'm going to just kind of explain it while they're doing that. Um, you're going to find that Capernaum is a center for miraculous activity, and it's key areas where Jesus taught. And, and it was this large city. It held about 1,500 people. Synagogue was in the center, stretched by over three kilometers by about two kilometers. Um, and, and the whole town was set up around the synagogue and out towards the seaside, which was kind of cliffs in a sense. And then if you went more to the west, it came down to beach where, where the fishermen would have done all their work, where Jesus would have encountered James and John and Simon and Andrew. Um, so you have this stuff, and then within it, you have this synagogue that is amazing. Now, the synagogue you're seeing on the video is actually a synagogue from the 4th, 3rd century that was built over this entire, um, the entire original synagogue that would have been there. But it would have been this large. It's built on the foundations. And so what's going on is... This synagogue had to hold up to 800 people in addition to having prayer halls on the side, in addition to having areas for other work that would happen at the synagogue like the Torah schools and all that. So the reason why we're giving you this panorama that you get a chance to see is because the story we're about to read, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue when a demon man interrupts his teaching. Right where this video finishes and where this picture is going is the spot where Jesus would have been teaching and reading from the scrolls. And it was when that panorama that somewhere in that room, this demon-possessed man would have jumped into it. And do you notice, did you notice the difference in color between the house buildings and the synagogue? How it's this black rock and it's these white rocks? Homes were always built out of this basalt rock that was all over the place in Israel. One of the things I realized going through Israel is that it's rocky. There's rocks everywhere, right? And they would build it out of that. But then for the synagogue, that was special. That was a special building. They would actually go to a quarry and they would make white stone to build the synagogue out of, right? And so they would build these things up, but everybody in the community would have contributed towards the synagogue. This wasn't just Jerusalem collecting money and then building synagogues. People in a town, people in a city had to put in sometimes up to 20% over 50 years. You were investing in the synagogue for your kids and your grandkids so you could build up that place. All right, enough of uh, history and archaeology and all that kind of stuff. Let me give you the context as we walk into the passage. Jesus has just been in his hometown of Nazareth. He's been there in the synagogue teaching, opens up the Isaiah scroll, talks about how he is the fulfillment of that. Everyone goes, who is this man? We know his mom and his brothers. This is amazing. I can't believe this. And then he kind of gives them a little bit of rebuke and about how they'll never kind of get what he's talking about. And they go, what is this? We hate you. We can't believe. Isn't that kind of funny? They like love him and then they hate him in the same moment. And then they all take him out to the cliffside. Do you remember when, Jesus, when Lance was talking about this? Lance is not Jesus. So when Lance is talking about this, they took Jesus out to the cliffside of Nazareth because it's up pretty high up in the mountains and they're going to throw him off. And Jesus does some type of ninja move and gets out from all the guys and just leaves. And it's not that he like fights them off ninja move. I'm talking about, I was talking with one of the security guys yesterday that Jesus without needing one of those little smoke balls, like throws it on the ground and then he like disappears. Right. 
but he didn't need the smoke ball because he's Jesus, right? So he's, you know, kind of glory of God, you know, and he can kind of take off. So Jesus ends up leaving Nazareth and now going to Capernaum, and that becomes the center for where he lives and where he comes out of his base camp at in Capernaum. Okay, I've talked way longer than I wanted to on this. Let's read the passage. This is a blending of Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, and Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. You can see it on the screen as well. And they went down into Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and immediately he entered the synagogue and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes, for his word possessed authority. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! That's what the ESV says. It's actually in the Greek, Eh, ah? So he's a Canadian demon. (laughs) What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon, the unclean spirit, had thrown him down on their midst, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another and questioned among themselves, saying, What is this word? A new teaching with authority. For with authority and power he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him and come out. And at once his fame spread everywhere, and reports about him went out into every place throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Cool story where you see people responding in amazement and wonder to not only his work, but his word, right? But they still don't get it. First off, I want you to see that it was normal for Jesus to go and attend synagogues and teach there. Jesus went in, he did it in Nazareth, he does it in Capernaum, he goes in and teaches, and when he teaches, everyone's astonished. And they're claiming all this authority he has. And the reason why is because it was common for rabbis or for people that had went through the Torah school up until they were like 12 or 13 to get a chance to come up and read from the scrolls and give in the Hebrew what was called a derashah. A derashah is basically the teaching, the unpacking of the text, right? It's the, it's the message. Jesus goes to give his derashah, but he does it differently than any other rabbi or any other person because the way people would do it is they usually would go up and say, This is what this rabbi says about it. This is what this rabbi says about it. This is what this rabbi says about it. Jesus goes totally off of that. And he speaks as one with authority. He gives the absolute claim of God and he declares God's will directly. This is more akin to a prophet than it is to just a scribe or a teacher of the law. This is somebody coming in and their words are catching people's attention because it's fresh and it's invigorating and you can see that he has authority. And authority is this word excusia in the Greek. It's not as much a physical power. It didn't have to do with his charisma. It didn't have to do with his argumentation. It had to do with the fact that he had legal authority to talk about this. That as he's speaking, they're realizing that he is an expert at this. He is somebody who could teach on everything because he has the power and the authority and the freedom to expand on what God wants the people to hear. And that grabs their attention. I think when people go into a lot of churches and they get a chance to encounter preaching and derashahs in that way, that's both fresh and intriguing. And the people see that the person knows it so clearly and they're so passionate about it. They sense that authority, they sense what it gives them, and they see the reflection that it provides. But it says that as Jesus is teaching, immediately 
a man with the spirit of an unclean demon cries out. And Luke is one of the only guys that uses three words to describe this demon. Most of the the, um, apostles and the writers of the gospels will use one or two words. They'll either say demon or unclean spirit. He says the spirit of an unclean demon. He stacks all the words on because he wants you to see how destructive something like this is. Because a demon, a demon in a person destroys their personality. It damages the person from the inside out. It usurps the center of themselves which is why a demon can speak in the place of the person that they're in. It messes them up morally. It messes them up physically. And Luke is drawing that out. He wants people to think about that. Now, one of the things I was thinking about in the text, I wonder if you were as well, is why does a demonized man go to a synagogue? How, often, how long has he been? Does he come every week? Right? Does, did no one else notice? Was this a guy that always interrupted? These are questions that it doesn't ask us, but you have to wonder what's going on. Do the community not understand this? Have they never done anything for this man? He makes a statement. He yells out, hey, ah, right? He's Canadian. And, and that means in the Greek, it's only two letters, but it simply means let us alone. Leave us alone. And he says, what do we have to do with each other? So what he's really saying, is he's saying, why are you interfering here? Why are you bothering? See, demons know something. James 2.19 tells us about it. It says, you believe that there's one God? Good. So do the demons. And they even shudder. And the demons know what's going on here. And this demon is asking and kind of saying, what are you doing here? Because your work and our work is very different. There's nothing common between us. There's kind of a chasm between what you're trying to do and what we're trying to do. And Jesus is going, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. But what's going on is this story for the book of Luke has come right after Jesus has spoken in Nazareth, and right after that, Jesus has just been in the wilderness going head-to-head with who? The devil, Satan. Jesus' first miracle is a direct holy war launched against the forces of evil. It's the first big miracle after that testing in the wilderness. This demonized man, he ends up shouting, you have come to destroy us. And then it says... And it identifies Jesus in his humanity as Jesus of Nazareth and in his deity as the Holy One of God. But in doing that, he's not giving some confession of dignity and giving us some doctrinal statement about Jesus. He's giving that in an opposition attempt to disarm Jesus. He understands who Jesus is as a holy agent. And that doesn't lead the demon to go, and I believe in you and accept you. It leads the demon to go, no, I'm on the defensive now. I'm going to resist you. Because that demon has no hope, no faith, no love for who the person or the work or the name of Jesus is. Jesus commands that demon to be muzzled. And when the demon had thrown him down in convulsions, it says he came out without harm, which is amazing. Jesus had just taught in Nazareth, remember, from the Isaiah scroll that one of the things he was going to fulfill is that he frees the captives. Now he's living it out. He's initiating a ministry of release. And that confession of a demon, that, that uh, confession of a demon in public does nothing to press his messianic kingdom forward, right? How often do you see Jesus go, here demons, tell everyone who I am and what I'm doing. The book of John later even makes the point that the people would use that as a reason to try to say that Jesus was in league with the devil, right? That's one of the reasons that Jesus keeps going, be muzzled, be silent, 
quiet. Secondly, he doesn't want them to say more than he's ready to reveal to everybody. So if they start saying, you're the Holy One of God, you're the Messiah, now everyone else is hearing that and going, wait, what does that mean? And how he has to explain it. And Jesus knew that there was a timing for everything. And so the demon, demon gives the man up without harm. And everybody is amazed. And almost like a bookend, it started with everyone being amazed at his teaching, astonished at his authority in his word. Then it says they were all amazed and questioned among themselves, saying, what is this word? A new teaching with authority. Because with authority and power, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him and come out. They have wonder mixed with fear. Because they are so surprised and marveled by what's going on. And part of the reason they're marveled is because it was typical when someone would cast out a demon to give some type of incantation, to give some type of way that they would end up using the name of God in order to cast that demon out. Jesus did not do it that way. Just like he didn't teach like the rabbis, he didn't go in the name of Yahweh Almighty. Jesus just says, be silent. And that's why they're going, man, just in the words... He's able to make demons shut up. In his words, he's able to teach us things about God. What is going on with this guy? But they marvel and they're amazed, but they don't really understand what he's really about, which is what Jesus had talked about in that John chapter 4 passage. The people didn't understand what he was about. They didn't wholeheartedly accept who he was or the kingdom mission he spoke of. The way I know that is because if you were to go to Matthew 11, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 to 24, Jesus gives a woe to a few different cities within that region. And one of them is Capernaum. He says, woe to you, Capernaum, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, from Sodom and Gomorrah, at the day of judgment, Sodom would, fa- Sodom would fare better than you. And he's saying even with all the miracles, even with all these things that you got a chance to see and be amazed by and be astonished by, you still don't get it. You don't see people respond in the way that that royal official did. You see people come, listen, be amazed, but they never really come to terms with him. So to wrap this up, I've just asked a truckload of questions that what do you do with it after all these stories and all these points? We talked about how there are important faith testing points in your life. That you have a chance to move from a faith of seeing signs to a faith of believing his word. And remember, that doesn't mean that you move away from the wonder of signs, but you realize that those signs have a purpose. And that's to tell you more about the person you follow and what he's doing and why. Secondly, we talked about how the issue is not, will Jesus do a miracle? The question is, will you take Jesus at his word without seeing the miracle? Will you engage in the revelation he's trying to give to you all the time? What are you doing with the divine revelation of Christ? How does what he talks about and what he does lead people to believe in him? Because I think both John 4 and Luke 4 are both trying to tell us, Don't miss out on the person who has the power and authority in his word and his work. Don't miss out on that. We sing the song this morning, I Surrender. And we say the the words, I want to know you more. Like that's what this passage is trying to get us to do. It's trying to challenge us in who we believe in and how we believe, and what that looks like. 
And this leaves you to take the information that you hear and that you see about Jesus and not just nod and say, yeah, I own that story, but makes you go, how do I imitate the compassion? How do I desire to involve myself in people's tragedies and their fears and their demons? That's scary. How do you function and act according to God's power and authority? If you're going to be Jesus, it means that God's power and authority indwells in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have a chance to step out in word and work. Not just work, not just miraculous activity, word and work. To step out and be an impact in people's life, engaging them with who Jesus is, not just what Jesus does. And you keep reading it, you keep hearing it, you keep seeing it, and you step out in faith and authority to fulfill what Matthew talks about as the final commission. A lot of people know it, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. You know, the whole therefore go and make disciples of all nations. But everyone always forgets verse 18. Verse 18 starts by Jesus saying, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go as you are going, make disciples the, re, the way that you can go out and make disciples and imitate, the way that you can go out and reach out to people is because of the authority and power of the word and work of Jesus Christ. You cannot miss that in these passages and you cannot miss that as we keep going through these verses on being Jesus. Let's give you this last verse, John chapter 20, verse 29. <clears throat> this is right after Jesus has raised from the dead Number of the disciples have seen him, but Thomas has not. Remember, and Thomas says, unless I see him with my eyes and I'm able to touch his wounds, will I then believe? Well, Jesus appears, very ninja style again, in the room, ends up showing himself to Thomas, and Thomas ends up saying in 28, my Lord and my God. And look at Jesus' response in 29. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And although I know that part of that is directly in correlation with Jesus having been raised from the dead, I think that's going throughout the entire book of John where Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you believe even if you don't get a chance to see, which Jesus knew a lot of people would not see his miraculous works. They would not see the resurrected Jesus, but yet we believe in him because you know the authority and the power of his word and his work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that authority. We thank you for that power. We pray that you would continue to fill us with it, Lord, that we would have chances to see revelations of your glory, revelations of your activity, but that, Lord, more than anything else, we want to know you better. We want to see the real Jesus. We want to have a chance to interact with you, Lord, and believe. Not just believe in the work, but to believe in you, to recognize what you do as king, what you do as Lord. So, Lord, we, play, we pray that you would open up our eyes. We pray that you would teach us and that, Lord, we would go out in your power and in your authority. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen.